And ultimately, my grandpa, after a couple years of having a normal diet, did eventually get a pneumonia. And he did eventually die of Parkinson's disease because of the pneumonia. But we were able to keep my grandfather comfortable on hospice through that pneumonia. And I have great peace knowing that he was able to be in the driver's seat until his very last breath. He was able to make choices for self-determination. And we didn't um, allow the system to trump those choices based on risk. We let him make those choices. So oftentimes in hospice, we come at it from a very, very different angle. It's about the whole person, not just about the disease state. Welcome to the With You at Every Step podcast. We address your healthcare questions and help you navigate life's challenges. Our guests share their expertise and real-world advice related to care for older adults, grief and healing, and pregnancy and parenting. Every Step is a nonprofit healthcare and human services organization offering dozens of programs that are there when people need us most. Learn more about our free and low-cost services at everystep.org. Thank you for listening. Here is our host, Holly Carver-Kim. And welcome again to today's episode of With You at Every Step. Our guest today is uh, Chief Medical Officer for Every Step, Dr. Tom Mosier. And you're also uh, not only an NMD, but you are highly qualified in hospice care. If I remember correctly, you did a special training in hospice and palliative care, didn't you, Dr. Mosier? That's correct. Yep. I did a fellowship um, at Stanford after residency in internal medicine. So, yep. Well, we're really glad to have your expertise, especially on today's uh, topic, because it's something that that if you are in the situation where your loved one is is at the end of life, um, unless you're in that situation, you may not think about it. Um, but if you have been in that situation, you know it is something to think about, and that's nutrition, foods, fluids at the end of life. And sometimes it looks confusing for the family as to how that's being handled. Um, I think one of the first things that that people notice when folks start um, reaching the end of life is that they just don't eat very much. Um, why is that the case, number one, Dr. Mosher? And then uh, should you be forcing them to eat? Should you be, you know, filling them with empty calories? How should you address that? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a really common question. In fact, I would say multiple times a day it comes up. And um, yeah, I think it's it's multifaceted. Many times it's families worrying because their loved one is not eating well, is not hungry, or is just nibbling. And then occasionally it will come up when somebody um, is not responsive enough to eat and therefore isn't taking in nutrition. And it's not as much volitional as um, something they can't do. And so in that um, situation, what comes up is, should we do artificial nutrition through a feeding tube, either a tube through the nose or a tube that goes through the stomach wall into the, or into the abdominal wall to the stomach? And I think the thing that causes the most distress, what I have borne witness to over and over, is the sense of showing love and nurturing somebody through food. And that's something that we've all really... It's been ingrained in us from an early age. Every single time I was sick as a child, my mom would always make me jello. That's the one time I would get to drink sugar pop. Um, she would, you know, cook me soup, anything to keep me eating. Um, 
But if you think about when you're sick, the reason that oftentimes we do that for our loved ones when they're ill is because when we are ill, we often do have a lack of appetite. And that is actually something that I think we we aren't really thinking about. It's not on our radar. We're not really aware of. But when our bodies are, are ill and they are trying to fight uh, an infection or maybe a cancer process or a chronic disease, they don't want to use all the energy it takes to digest food in digesting food. And so hunger tends to wane. And so we have all learned that when that happens, to bridge somebody through that, to give their body the nutrients it needs to fight, we need to really push foods and push foods that they're hungry for and that they can tolerate. And so it is a way to love somebody and to nurture them through that. But when it comes to an end-of-life scenario, that oftentimes will backfire and the body turning off hunger or not being able to process food and potentially even food causing things like nausea or reflux or um, just bloating or feeling, you know, feeling not uh, ill from eating. Um, it, it comes to head with the desire to do something, anything to help them. So it is a common issue that we see distress with. It, is it uh, possible to then provide medication or some other stimulant to have them eat more? Or do you not want to do that? Yeah, in a situation where people just aren't hungry and aren't eating well, that is often the, the number one question that comes up. Um, first, usually the issue of, well, we're just going to, through sheer will force them to eat, but that, that often will backfire. And so we definitely encourage families, um, to not, um, put a lot of pressure on their loved ones to eat when they're not wanting to, because that's actually their body putting the, the roadblock in place. But, um, you know, the next thing is often, can we use a medication to overcome this, to either stimulate appetite, um, and override, um, what's going on. And there are some medications uh, out there, uh, a couple of different classes that that at times we try. But I will tell you, in my experience, it is extremely rare that those medications actually work because the body's uh, way of protecting itself in turning off hunger is really, really hard to override. And so oftentimes when we use medications to try to do that, we either just fail or we end up with unattended side effects from those medications um, that kind of backfire on us. So typically my recommendation is not to try to add a pill to overcome that. It's really to allow the body to set the tone and allow the, the individual who's feeling what they're feeling to, to set the tone. Okay. So just understanding that it's part of the process. It's a natural, a natural part of uh, aging. I mean, certainly our appetites decrease as we age, and then as you get to the end of life, it becomes more so of the process. Yeah, absolutely. The body really does um, know how to to battle illness 
in a way that uh, keeps you the most comfortable. And so when we try to force things, sometimes um, we end up shanghaiing the body's best intents. You know, I think the thing that that comes to interface a lot in these conversations is the word starvation and families being really distraught. But if we don't do something, they will continue to lose weight. And I don't want my loved one to starve to death. Right. And um, one of the things that I often will, will tell them is that, you know, in my, in my experience and the way I think about it, when I hear the word starvation, I think about somebody who is insatiably hungry, desires food or fluid more than anything in, else, but, but literally has no access to it and therefore has no means to satisfy that strong desire. That, to me, epitomizes the word starvation. But uh, when placed next to the issues that, that come up in end of life, I think of it very differently. It's an individual who literally oftentimes is not hungry, who literally oftentimes is choosing not to eat because they, they don't feel good when they do eat. And so it isn't a sense of suffering when they're not eating. And in fact, it actually maybe is closer to suffering or discomfort when they do eat. And so I don't really think of that in terms of starvation. We think of it in terms of, of something we call inanition, which is just the, the, the lack of desire and appetite, which will eventually drive weight loss, but ultimately is not causing suffering along the way. That's very. That's a very important uh, thing to know because you you do uh, equate that with start. Well, I'm starving my loved one to death, or they're starving. Uh, but you know, one thing that uh, that I think we've, as a parent, you know, has been drilled into my head is if when my kids were sick, uh, well, make sure you're still drinking something. Uh, are you drinking Seven Up for your stomach ache, or make sure you're drinking Gatorade or something? So, how do fluids and IV fluids, especially, play into that whole realm of hospice care. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's it's definitely the two issues. Food is one, but fluid is the other. And um, IV fluids come up a lot. You know, the first thing that, again, we were conditioned to expect when somebody is sick and, get, and ends up in the ER or ends up in the hospital is they, they put an IV in them right away, right? And we start fluids right away. And so oftentimes fluids are associated with the most basics of needs when somebody is sick. But the reality is that many, many times those fluids actually backfire in the hospital. And in fact, the more critically ill you are, the more those fluids can have a potential to cause harm. And the way we often see that is it's really common for somebody to come out of the hospital having gained 10 to 20 pounds sometimes of weight. And they have very, very swollen legs and arms. They might be short of breath because some of that fluid has displaced in the lungs. When a body is sick, the kidneys aren't working as well, so they're not able to get rid of that fluid uh, as easily. The heart often starts having more trouble uh, with those larger blood volumes and pressures. And so it's very common when one's body is very ill for the organ systems to start failing in how they would normally handle fluid which makes it really critical that we pay attention to that because in giving too much fluid with intent to help, we can actually, again, cause harm. 
And oftentimes that is in that fluid being displaced into places it shouldn't be, like um, between the outside skin and uh, the internal body, in the legs, in the arms. Um, oftentimes it may accumulate inside of the, the belly region, in the tummy, we call it ascites. And that can actually lead to quite a bit of discomfort. It can lead to potentials for skin breakdown and infections in the skin. And so um, when people come to us, it's not uncommon that we literally not only don't want to give more fluids, but we are hoping that we can actually get rid of some of that excess fluid that has built up in the body because it helps them feel better. And so being mindful of how important and critical it is to keep fluid balance to a point that the body can handle is really important. This just hammers home to me once again how critical it is that you have a qualified hospice care team because, you know, everything you've just told me goes against what my natural, uh, you know, non-medical viewpoint would be. Oh, well, we've got to make a meet and, of course, I've got to have fluids. Um, so, obviously, that's the role of the hospice team is determine where a patient or an individual is on that spectrum and, and exactly what they need. How do you determine then if a patient needs, I'm, and for lack of the, the technical term, a feeding tube, how does that be determined and when is that the right thing? That's a good question. So there is a time and a place for feeding tubes, but most every time that a feeding tube really makes sense, it's in a situation where somebody has an illness that we think is time limited, that they will get through. And we want to just be able to sustain nutrition until their body recovers and is able to function normally because we don't want them to get too far behind. So an example of that would be somebody who has a surgery. Maybe it's a major abdominal surgery and um, and they're a little slow to be able to eat again because of weakness from being debilitated. And so we supplement with a feeding tube. That may be somebody who is on a ventilator um, and literally cannot eat. And so we're trying to just keep their nutrition up so that they can not lose ground during their illness while they cannot eat. But we but we feel that that's going to be a temporary situation. At end of life, however, the feeding tubes often are not bridging somebody to anything. There are situations and disease states where somebody may lose the ability to eat long before they have lost um, good living or where they have some good quality time left to live. And we're then at that point talking about, let's try to keep them feeling as good as they can for as long as they can. An example of that, um, many times are situations like uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, where somebody has lost their ability to safely swallow, but ultimately um, still has the ability to function in other ways. And so we don't want them to get an aspiration pneumonia. We may want to supplement with, with uh, feeding, tube feeding, so that they do not have a serious illness with pneumonia before um, when they have good quality living time left, when they have goals and they have things that they want to, to live for still. But ultimately, most situations where people are literally not hungry, when we put a feeding tube in them, we, we not only impose a lot of potential for discomfort with having the tube in place, 
but we also impose a lot of risk. So one of the misnomers is, is that when you have a feeding tube, it's a fairly simple thing without a lot of complications. And the reality is the tube feeding can be very hard to digest when you're sick and oftentimes will lead to a lot of issues with loose stools and diarrhea, which can lead to skin breakdown and irritation um, in the rectal area from that. We also sometimes overfeed people or the stomach and intestines can't process it and they run the risk of regurgitation or aspiration into their lung. Um, it doesn't necessarily fit the need a lot of times for just pleasure eating. Um, certainly putting something in the stomach can maybe help satiety for a for a temporary period, but ultimately a lot of people who are um, long-term on a feeding tube don't really derive a lot of comfort or satiety from it. And in fact, a lot of them want the tube out and would rather nibble on bites or sips of food and fluid for pleasure and take what they're hungry for than um, have it through the tube. So ultimately, the tubes don't actually bridge people to a whole lot of benefit when it's in an end-of-life scenario. Because typically when somebody is on hospice, it's because we know their body is going to continue to decline towards end of life. And so ultimately, there is not a point that we can bridge them to where we would actually literally be able to not have them on the tube anymore and have them eating um, in a different way. I, I, that just that it, goes I'll right just, into what I was I, just going to ask you is, are there situations in hospice care where you have a patient who is utilizing a feeding tube and like you just mentioned, they say, I don't want, I, I want to eat a piece of pumpkin pie. And and the family doesn't know what to do because they're on this tube, but the patient is saying, I, I really want to eat my favorite things. How do you balance that or what do you do in that situation? Yeah, it's a good question. It comes up a lot. It, it came up in my own grandpa. My, grand, my grandfather had Parkinson's disease and he was uh, at high risk of a weak swallow that would allow food to penetrate into his lungs, which could give him an aspiration pneumonia. And so a lot of times in healthcare, what we do is paternalistically, we try to protect people from themselves. And so in the hospital, if you have a, a weak swallow and you're at risk of aspirating into your lungs, we, we literally write orders that they're not allowed to eat. And so it's very common for people to come to us with the term NPO, nothing by mouth, where they're not been allowed to eat. And a lot of times uh, feeding tubes have been talked about. Most of the time, families recognize that's really not something that would, would be comfortable for my loved one or if the loved one is uh, able to speak on their own many times, we'll opt against it. But ultimately, when, um, when somebody is listed as NPO, it, it can then lead to that crossroads of, but this isn't living. If I'm hungry for something and you're not allowing me to even try because of the risk, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So what we often will do is in the hospice scenario, we'll, we'll talk to them about ways to reduce the risk of choking, tucking their chin when they swallow, trying foods that are maybe a little bit less likely to be aspirated, um, things that they can handle, going low and slow and trying things. 
so that ultimately we allow for the autonomy of trying and choosing to eat things that bring them joy, that they're hungry for. Many times they don't take that many bites because they literally aren't that hungry, but it's really wonderful to have that one bite of pizza or whatever it is that that they're wanting. If they then are having trouble with choking and we witness that, then we will give counsel on maybe things to avoid or different things to try. But ultimately, we kind of balance that desire and those goals of autonomy um, with the risks. So in my own grandfather, he did not want to have... um, meats that were ground up and pureed for him to reduce his risk of choking. He did not want thickener in his coffee. He wasn't going to drink gelatin. He was going to drink regular coffee. And he was willing to accept the risks of getting a pneumonia. And ultimately, my grandpa, after a couple years of having a normal diet, did eventually get a pneumonia. And he did eventually die of Parkinson's disease because of the pneumonia. But we were able to keep my grandfather comfortable on hospice through that pneumonia. And I have great peace knowing that he was able to be in the driver's seat until his very last breath. He was able to make choices for self-determination. And we didn't um, allow the system to trump those choices based on risk. We let him make those choices. So oftentimes in hospice, we come at it from a very, very different angle. It's about the whole person, not just about the disease state. Yeah, I think this again illustrates how special hospice is, is that, of course, the overall well-being of the patient is the top thing, um, but it does take into consideration their personal desires and, and how they want their life to be, because the purpose of hospice is making the most of each day and uh, not about dying. It's about living to the the fullest capacity. And so... I just think that's a sweet story about your grandpa that he did get to, didn't have to eat those pureed meats. And uh, that's awesome. <laughs> Dr. Tom Mosher, our guest again today. Wow, he's always got so much information. And really, uh, we thank you for being on this show again today. He's the chief medical officer for Every Step. If you have questions about hospice care, obviously we have the experts on hand who can answer those for you. Uh, there's an easy way to get, gain that expertise. Just go to our website. It's www.everystep.org slash care, C-A-R-E, everystep.org slash care. Little uh, form there you fill out. It's all confidential. Um, and somebody from our team will get in touch with you to answer your questions. So, Dr. Vosher, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. I'm Polly Carver-Kim. 